Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Now when I was looking at putting together the episode guide I realized this is the last week that my boys are all in school so I figured I'd take the opportunity to tackle a gigantic case and present it over the course of the next four episodes. So this is going to be the largest episode I've done to date and possibly one of the largest episodes I think I could ever do. But instead of one gigantic episode, it'll be broken down into four roughly one hour episodes. Now, if you haven't already done so, please check out the previous versions of True Blue Crime on all the podcast platforms. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to and when these episodes will hit the platforms, feel free to follow the Facebook page at True Blue Crime Productions or check out www.truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations received will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And at no cost to you, if you could rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to, it helps other listeners find the podcast, expanding the listenership, and I appreciate any and all help on this matter. So without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Now, I'm learning how to use this audio software a little more each time I do an episode, so I'm going to try to put a phone a recorded phone call from the suspect in this case into this podcast so by the time i have this figured out you will be hearing it correctly but listen closely to this phone call listen to the voice and imagine how terrified you'd be if you received this phone call during one of the most prolific string of crime in recorded history now this is a phone call that was recorded in 1977 left for a victim of one of the this monster's crime so here you go. So that's going to be the voice of the suspect in this case. The voice is from 1977 and would go unidentified for over 40 years. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the crimes by this suspect during his early crime spree. Now, this suspect would go on to be given several different nicknames, and this is because as he moved through different geographical areas... It wasn't known at the time that this was all the same suspect committing these crimes. So each time he was in a new area, he would be given a new nickname. The main nicknames that he's going to be known for is the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and the original Night Stalker. Now, the Visalia Ransacker cases were linked to him later, so he was mainly known 
as or the connection was mainly known between the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker, so he's actually given the nickname Eron's, which E-A-R-O-N-S for East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker. And then in 2013, because he was also deemed to be involved in several other crime sprees, they decided it was easier to give him one moniker, and he was dubbed the Golden State Killer. So this episode is actually going to cover the crimes that he was associated with as both the Visalia Ransacker and before his time as the Visalia Ransacker. The earliest crime that I could find associated to this suspect, and although he's identified, I'm not going to name him until the last episode, just to keep things somewhat of a mystery as they were back in the 70s when these crimes were occurring. I feel like if I had dove right into identifying who the guy is, that it takes away some of that intrigue. So again, I'm just going to lay out the crimes. Now, I'm not going to lay out every crime, because as you're going to find out, there are hundreds of crimes that are that are associated to this, this suspect. So to go through each one, one by one, would probably be its own podcast, and it would be several seasons and several episodes, and it would just ultimately end up being a lot of the same related crimes without a whole lot of information. What I did was kind of picked some of the crimes to highlight to, to show what this guy was capable of as well as the pattern that was established between his crimes. And so we'll cover we'll, or I'll, I'll cover that in some of the major crimes during these early early times. And then when we get into some of his more prolific crimes later on, those I will actually go through crime by crime. In February of 1972, this is going to be in the town of Rancho Cordova, California. Now this is a suburb east of California's capital city of Sacramento. There's going to be a string of what would be identified as cat burglaries that occur in this town. And as a result of that, the nickname the Cordova Cat Burglar is going to be given to the suspect. Now, these are some pretty low-level crimes in the grand scheme of of this crime spree, and it's occurring in a time in which there appeared to be a little bit more laid-back approach to crime and crime prevention. So a lot of these crimes are going to be chalked up to what is believed to be activity by kids or something along those lines, but as we'll go through these crimes, we're going to find out that a picture of something much more sinister is going to emerge. I got most of this information from a really good article that aired in the LA Times in June of 2019, and this was uh, a writer that was drawing the parallels between the Cordova cat burglar and the Golden State Killer. The suspect who would eventually be arrested for this case is actually was living in Rancho Cordova at this time, and a lot of the methods of operation and circumstances surrounding these crimes is very similar to what we will see later on with cases that are 100% identified as cases with the Golden State Killer. This is early 1972. An unknown suspect would enter homes, sometimes killing the family dog, but wouldn't take much of value, if anything, and then leave. They're kind of considered nuisance crimes, 
However, strangely enough, despite several of these break-ins and several slayings of family dogs, it wasn't until a beloved stray dog that roamed this neighborhood was found beaten and killed that people really started to take notice and some articles started to run in the local paper. Now, it appeared in this case that likely the dogs were assaulted and killed due to the fact that they would alert people. And the last thing a cat burglar wants is for people to come across them. So basically a cat burglar is someone who is going to enter a residence, usually at night, while the people are home and sleeping, but they're going to move so silently through the house and cause such little disturbance that nobody's going to wake up. However, the next morning, the homeowners will likely notice something missing or something out of place, either unintentionally or intentionally by the suspect, indicating that someone had been in the house the previous evening. As I said, a dog, whether it be a family dog or in this case a stray dog, is going to likely bark at any intruder coming in in the middle of the night, which is going to destroy the opportunity for the suspect to do what they like to do, which is move through these houses. Now, this is often a feeling of power of control as the person feels like they can move through somebody else's house and touch their stuff and, and manipulate it while the person is sleeping. And clearly a family dog or a stray dog that's barking is going to prevent that person from having that control. So as the pattern emerges, emerges of dogs either being beaten or in some cases shot, the suspect would go above and beyond to actually haul the either dead or dying animal into the house and leave it there for the family to find the next day. So we're starting to get into the psychological side of these crimes that these killings of animals were not done just for the completion of the crime. They're done in a way to terrorize people. And the fact that the crimes are committed with only a small amount of value taken from the home is also another indicator that the suspect doesn't necessarily need to commit these crimes. It doesn't appear that they are fueling a drug habit or trying to be a big-time burglar taking a large amount of value out of a home to turn that into a profit. So in reality, it seems as if this person is committing these crimes just because they can. And again, it's a, it's a feeling of control and terror that they're putting over the homeowners. Now, at this time, Rancho Cordova is a new and, and growing suburb. It's filled with young families, and many of the homeowners worked on or for the Mather Air Force Base. And there was a rocket plant also in town called Aerojet that I believe worked with, you know, in conjunction, I should say, with the Air Force Base there. So I kind of likened it to the a military equivalent of a Silicon Valley. This, is, this growth occurred rapidly during the Vietnam War. And 1972, we're talking about the decline of the Vietnam War, but the, the growth would have likely still been going on as money poured into the area with defense contracts and money for the base. Now, as I stated earlier, the Cordova Cat Burglar was given this nickname because he had a ha habit of, of making these hot prowls, which is sneaking into an occupied house during the night. 
and he would usually just steal a purse and then empty it out in the, in the backyard, taking the cash and coins. So again, he's not making a large amount of money off of these burglaries. And he's doing this to upwards of two to three houses a night. And it was estimated that in just the first six months of 1973 that he did this to at least 50 homes. In addition to not seeming to care about the financial gain of these crimes, he often would eat food out of the refrigerators and drink alcohol from the house. And then he would spend time in the woman's bedroom if she was sleeping. And he would locate her underwear and move it to another room and display it for her when she woke up. So again, this goes back to as he's in somebody else's personal space and they're vulnerable, he gets to have this feeling of control. He can eat their food, he can drink their beer, he can manipulate their underwear, and he wants to make sure that they're finding this the next day because if they don't, they don't even know that they were a victim. So he's doing things and it's starting to show a, a sexual side to his his psychology here as well. And this is going to continue to ramp up as he continues as he gets more bold with each break-in. Now again I mentioned that the police started to think this could be the work of of like neighborhood kids or teenagers because they're the most likely suspects when it comes to taking just cash and, and coins and, and whatnot out of a house and drinking beer. Those are crimes you usually associate with teenagers. However, there are going to be a couple victims that do see this suspect. One was a man that woke up to see a man standing in his the doorway of the bedroom, and he knows for sure this was a man and not a teenager. And then another woman was actually going to be awoken in the middle of the night to this man touching her breast as she slept. So he's now elevated to the point in which he is having contact with his victim. Now, that doesn't mean that he wanted the victim to wake up. He may be pushing the envelope to see how much he can get away with. But these incidents are, are going to let police know that they're dealing with a suspect that is getting increasingly dangerous. Now, this is a good time to talk about burglaries and ransacking. So there was a difference in the crimes that were being committed. Some of the houses would have the cat burglar effect to it, where he would be coming in in the middle of the night while people were sleeping, and little to nothing was disturbed except for what he wanted to disturb and, and have the homeowner see. And then other houses were being ransacked. And this is items strewn about, broken, you know, damage being done inside the house in a deliberate manner. Both of them are burglaries. Just There's just a different motivator to each. And it seemed to be that if he broke into a house and no one was home, he would ransack it. And if he broke into a house and someone was home, he would sneak around and do his cat burglar thing. He always seemed to have a plan and he would establish escape points by unlocking and leaving doors open so that if somebody woke up, he'd have a, a, a way to escape the house as quickly as possible. Then just as quickly as these crimes started and, and began to ramp up, they just suddenly stopped. Now, when I was doing research, there's not a whole lot of information out there about the Cordova cat burglar. I believe it was only 
recently that he that people put together that the suspect of the Golden State Killer case was likely also the Cordova cat burglar. And this is mainly because of the geographical region in which the identified suspect lived at the time matched up to these crimes. And when you take a closer look at what we're going to see with the Visalia Ransacker later in this episode, it does match up very close to what was going on in Cordova uh, in early 72 and 73. So there's not a whole lot of information. Nobody's really broken down this crime by crime. There's mentions of of this crime or, or that crime and then some articles that have put it together like that LA Times article uh, showing the assaults on the dogs and mentioning some of the uh, eyewitness accounts but basically when 1973 rolls around and the Cordova cat burglar crime stop that's it for information on the Cordova cat burglar even the number of homes that were victimized during this time period vary depending on which article you read. Some state that it was 30 homes in total, and others say it was at least 50 in just the first six months of 1973 alone, and this occurred in 72 and 73, so the number would be over 50 homes. So it's likely somewhere in that 50 house range, and that's, again, of known cases. It's hard with these because there's there are people that will not report crimes to the police for various number of reasons. Either it could be that they're wanted by the police, so calling the police when they have a warrant to come to their house is not in their best interest, so they'd rather just eat the fact that they're a victim of a crime. Uh, it may be because they don't trust the police. They may be immigrants from another country here legally that don't trust the police or they could be here illegally and, and fear being deported so there's a bunch of reasons why people might not call the police or i guess the one i heard the most when i was a police officer was they didn't they felt like they're going to waste the police officer's time people would feel embarrassed they left a door unlocked or a window open or something along those lines and why waste the police time like all the guy did was come in and eat some of our food and and drink some of our beer and the people are probably thinking the same thing it's just some neighborhood kids i'm not going to waste the police department's time so known cases is probably somewhere around 50 but it's very like very likely that that number of victimized houses was actually much higher but as we end 1973 we're going to switch over to the Visalia Ransacker. There's a really great we website out there if you're wanting more information about the Visalia Ransacker called VisaliaRansacker.com and it gives a great breakdown of the crimes and some of the major crimes. I got a lot of my information for this episode from that site and it does a pretty good job of explaining that there are a lot of cases during this time period that are not directly linked to the Visalia Ransacker through any form of evidence, or there's just not enough information to say that the, the crime was committed by the Van, Visalia Ransacker, but basically any prowling or, or ransacking incident that occurred in the time frame we're going to talk about is believed to have been committed by the Visalia Ransacker. 
So in total, we're talking over 150 crimes not confirmed and over 100 crimes confirmed. So let's just start in May of 1973. So just as things wind down in Rancho Cordova, things are going to pick up in Visalia. So there's a few cases from 1973 and early 1974 that are believed to be the work of the Visalia Ransacker, but again, there's either not enough information to prove this or not enough evidence in these cases to prove it. So the first confirmed case is going to actually be in April of 1974. So Visalia itself, it's a decent sized city, right? Or it's currently a decent sized city at about 150,000 people uh, current day. Now back in 1974, it had about 32,000 people. And just for a geographic reference here, Visalia is midway between Fresno, California and Bakersfield, California. It's, it's right on a highway that connects basically those two towns and then it's just west of the Sequoia National Park. So it's going to see a lot of traffic and be a, a, a pretty popular town for people to visit. Now, if you're not from California or you're not very familiar with the geography I gave you, the better picture of it, I guess, is it's roughly halfway between San Francisco and L.A. However, if you're traveling from San Francisco to L.A., you're going to use Interstate 5 and you're not going to, unless you want a very scenic route, go through Visalia when you're going from LA to San Francisco. But geographically, it's uh, it's basically halfway between what's considered Northern California and Southern California. And just for a time reference, between Rancho Cordova that we just talked about and Visalia, we're talking about roughly about a three and a half hour drive or just over 200 miles. So as we mentioned, many believe that May of 1973 is the start of this series of, of prowlings and, and ransackings. And just to break down what some of these cases in 1973 look like, there's a string of prowler events that they believe belong to the Visalia Ransacker. So on September 3rd of 1973, a 15-year-old girl awakes to a noise opens her blinds and sees a man standing outside her window. He takes off as soon as she opens the blinds. And this is gonna be kind of a, a common theme to the prowling events is somebody, whether it be the victim of the prowling or somebody else is gonna see this same man. And he's described almost the same in all of the incidents uh, as being about five foot 10 and, and a stocky build and a younger, a younger man. But he's, he's gonna be seen outside of somebody's window and he's going to take off running. On September 10th, a 15-year-old girl's mother is walking out to her car that's parked on the curb in front of the house, and she hears a noise by her fence. She looks over a fence and sees a man leaving her yard. So again, she's not seeing her directly, or seeing the suspect directly looking into her daughter's window, but it sounds like based on the proximity of the window in the backyard that, and the fact that the man probably started to flee when he heard the door shut, and that's what caused her to hear the noise. It was likely that he was prowling the window at the time she was leaving the house. And then sometime later that September, not every case on the website has a date, a 16-year-old either feels like there's somebody outside her window or hears a noise and she sees this prowler outside her window. 
A few days later, she sees the same prowler, and her boyfriend confronts the man, who takes off running. And the prowler shouts something to an unseen, likely fake accomplice. He yelled something like, they're on to us, Bill, or something along those lines as he was running away. But the boyfriend stops chasing the suspect because he feels the man was possibly reaching for a gun. Now we get into early 1974, that same 16-year-old's residence, there's going to be a suspect, that same suspect's going to be seen in the area, and the residence directly next to this 16-year-old house is going to report a prowling. We've moved into early 1974, now we're getting several reports of burglaries and ransacking in this same area of town, and they have the same MO as the Cordova cat burglar, it's small items of limited value and cash are being taken from the residents a lot of look like a lot of stamp books because stamp collecting is big back in this day but it's it's stuff like stamp books coins and cash that are being taken and in may of 1974 alone we've got eight ransackings that are actually reported and again as i mentioned earlier we could have as many as three to four times as many that aren't being reported things are ramping up in May of 1974. This pattern would continue through the summer and into 1975. The prowlings at this point had mainly given way to ransacking, so there's not as many prowlings reported, and now we're getting a lot more reports of this guy going into houses when nobody's home and damaging the place, stealing from the homes, and during the course of these ransacking, several guns are going to be stolen, and the police are going to notice this is occurring at a pretty regular rate. There are a few times that the suspect's interrupted by the homeowner, but he manages to flee each time before they're able to locate him. And that goes back to this suspect is planning these things out. When he goes into these houses, he's often leaving a door propped open or swung wide open or something along those lines usually a back door if it's a ransacking because it's most common that the homeowner is going to come in through the front door or you know a service door from the garage or something like that so if he hears the garage door go up if he hears a car if he hears whatever he's going to run out the back of the house and backyards you know tend to be more private so there's going to be less chance that an eyewitness is going to see him as he's fleeing the area now, he's going to continue to elevate the sexual aspect of these crimes as there's several of these ransackings. It's going to appear that he masturbated to photos of uh, family members or stuff that he's finding in the homes. Then, on February 5th of 1975, a man is seen prowling outside the window of a 16-year-old girl. Now, we're going to come back to this prowling. Again, There's there's if you check out this website, there's... 8, 10, 12 sometimes of these prowling or ransackings reported for each month, and I wasn't going to go through each month, but I'm going to highlight the ones that kind of tend to come back around that we're going to talk to later. So this is February 5th of 1975, and as I said, a man is seen prowling outside the window of a 16-year-old girl, and this is going to be a home that's going to come up later in, in the conversation here. The ransackings not only were getting more sexual at this time, they also seemed to be getting more angry. So in addition to him masturbating on family photos and whatnot, he's smashing the fo family photos on the floor and people are really starting to feel like this guy is targeting them, whether it's because he, they're getting, or because he's prowling them and then he's ransacking them, whether it be um, 
you know, just just because the sheer volume of these that are starting to happen, people are starting to get uh, very worried. Now, on July 25th, a 19-year-old female is going to come home and find a ransacker in her house. This time, I don't know if he just didn't plan it out properly, or maybe he didn't hear her come into the house, but he's going to have contact with her, and he's going to shove her to the ground and flee the scene. Now, this is another house that will eventually come into play later on in, in this episode. And I should note, he was also making plans, uh, or sorry, he was also planning things out so well that when he was going into these houses, uh, he would cut power to air conditioners so that there wouldn't be the hum, the electrical hum of the air conditioners so that he could hear if somebody came home. He would put items on doors like perfume bottles and stuff so that if somebody came home and turned the knob, it would fall and, and the shattering glass would alert him. So... He's got all these different methods to make sure that, that he has the least opportunity of getting caught in the act. On August 23rd, he's going to ransack a house, and in the process, instead of taking the cash, he's going to leave the cash out on a bed, and then a bunch of 22 caliber ammunition is going to be left on the bed as well. Now, I did not read that the 22 caliber ammunition belonged in the house, as if he, you know, removed it from a closet and put it out on the bed, but I did read during several ransackings earlier that month and, and the previous months he did steal 22 caliber ammunition. So I couldn't tell through the research whether this was something he brought with him and then put out as a message to the homeowners, just again, that power, control, terror. Uh, thing going on or whether he found it in the house and decided he had already had enough 22 caliber ammunition and thought it would just be fun to put it out so the homeowners find bullets on their bed so on august 31st he's going to ransack a home and steal a 38 caliber revolver and several hundred rounds of ammunition then on september 11th of 1975 things are going to turn from dangerous to deadly a 16-year-old girl is going to spend a regular evening in her home with her family and boyfriend. The boyfriend leaves around 10 p.m. and the rest of the family goes to bed shortly after this time. The windows in the house were open because it had been a warm day and the air conditioner was acting up. Now let's go back in time a little bit so that we can cover all of the previous incidents that, are, that have occurred at this home. So I mentioned the February 5th, 1975 uh, incident. and. Got a little more into details now. It said actually the homeowner and father, Claude Snelling, interrupted the prowler outside his daughter's window. He chased the man but lost him, and the police searched the area but could not locate the suspect, but they are going to find shoe prints under the, their, his daughter's window that match the Visalia ransacker. So at this point, there are so many crime scenes that officers are going to be used to going to these crime scenes, whether it be a prowling or a burglary or ransacking, and they're going to look for these distinct Reebok shoe prints that are being left at the scene and as soon as they see these shoe prints they know that they've that this is another crime associated with the Visalia ransacker so now on we, we're back to the September 11th however it's actually that when I mentioned that she was home on a regular evening this is actually the evening of September 10th during the earlier part of of that evening uh, around 7 p.m. the daughter reported hearing a noise outside her window but it was too dark to see anyone outside now again research from this time isn't really easy to find I don't know if that's why the boyfriend was over there till 10 p.m. that she had called him over because she had heard this noise outside her window or whether the boyfriend was there at the time 
it didn't make mention one way or the other. But to me, when I read the original article, the boyfriend being there till 10 p.m., I kind of thought, well, that seems a little late for a 16-year-old's boyfriend to be hanging out in her room, but maybe it's associated with the fact that she had heard this noise at 7 p.m. and couldn't see anyone outside. So now we go into the early morning hours of September 11th, and at 2.17 that morning, the daughter woke up from her sleep to someone on top of her. This person's applying pressure and covering her nose and mouth. And at first she thought it could be one of her brothers, because apparently her brothers had done this to her before as a joke, which I didn't really understand how that could be a joke. But regardless, she's going to realize very quickly is not her brother and that this is a man and he's staring at her with what she describes as angry eyes. Initially, she tries to fight him off mainly because she couldn't breathe. He had such a grasp over her mouth and nose to prevent her from screaming that he's cutting off her air supply. So she's going into panic mode and her struggle is actually going to be enough between him and her to break one of the bedposts. And the man must have realized that he was cutting off her air supply. He growls at her, don't scream or I'll stab you. Now, she didn't see a knife, but she's smart enough not to risk getting stabbed. And, so, and she wants to breathe, so she stays quiet after he removes his hand from her face. He then pulls a gun out and told her she was coming with them. He grabs her left arm with his right arm and starts dragging her out of the house and he's holding the gun in his left hand. She resists him at several points. She's trying to break free as he's dragging her through the house, but he's too strong. However, she's making enough noise by resisting him that she's gonna wake up her father and one of her brothers. The suspect gets her to the back door, which had been left open as we've talked about before, this is his either way to escape or in this case his way to get his uh, kidnapping victim out and starts dragging her out of the house. She's still trying to fight him, still trying to break free. All the way through the backyard, they make it to, they have this gate on, on the fence in the backyard. Just as they're getting to on the other side of this gate at this fence, they hear yelling coming from inside the house and it's going to be this girl's father, Claude Snelling, running through the house and he's yelling things such as, what are you doing? Why are you taking my daughter? And he runs out of the house into the backyard, at which point the suspect lets go of the girl and takes up a shooting stance. And once Claude is close enough, he opens fire twice, striking him twice, uh, striking Claude twice in the torso. Claude goes down and the suspect points the weapon towards the daughter. Now the daughter thinks she's just about to be shot, so she turns her head to look away, at which point the suspect kicks her two to three times and then takes off in a run. Claude's wife, meanwhile, is calling for an ambulance and police. Claude is transported to the hospital, but dies from his gunshot wounds. The police arrive and start the investigation into this homicide. Now, as a part of their investigation, they're gonna find several things that are gonna answer some of their questions here. So a stolen bicycle is found in a nearby yard and the bike, this bike had been stolen on the 9th from a nearby house and shoe prints by this stolen bicycle match the Visalia ransacker. So some people were wondering prior to this how he always seemed to get away from the police no matter how quickly they got to the house and shut down the area and searched they could never find him, and now they believe the main reason is because he's got this, 
he's stealing these bikes and staging them near these crime scenes so that if he does get caught he can run out grab one of these bicycles and be farther away than the police assume he can be on foot mrs snelling's purse was found outside the house so this told them that the suspect actually first entered the house went through her purse putting the purse outside and then went back in to get the daughter because there was no mention of him grabbing the purse while he had the daughter and it didn't, wouldn't make sense for him to do so uh, so it's believed he actually spent some time in the house before he ever entered the, the daughter's room. The suspect had removed a window screen in order to gain access to the house. Uh, remember the windows were open because it was warm and the AC wasn't working right. And some people want to believe that there's a good chance he spent so much time staking out these houses and prowling them and stuff that when he wanted to hit a house he may mess with the air conditioning system for the houses that actually had them back then or find other methods to try to get people to leave their windows open and in this case he, all he had to do is remove the screen and he actually brought the screen and put it on a travel camper across the road put it on top of the roof of it again it's not like he just showed up to this house Slid a, slid a screen, went in and grabbed the daughter. He spent a great amount of time setting up this crime. A stolen flashlight was also found in your nearby backyard that had been stolen during a ransacking on August 30th. And the gun stolen on the 31st, that 38 caliber revolver, was believed to be the murder weapon. Police are going to pretty early on find that the bullets that killed Claude uh, Snelling are 38 caliber bullets. And they're going to put two and two together and believe that that missing 38 was likely used. Now they're going to go back to the victim of the August 31st ransacking. The victim, the gun owner, is actually going to tell the police, I just, before the gun was stolen, I had been out using it at a, a target practice place that the guy used. And he was able to take the police there and they were able to recover something like 70 38 caliber bullets that he knew he fired from his gun and they were able to compare those bullets fired from the gun to the bullets that killed Claude Snelling and confirm for a fact that the gun taken from this homeowner on the August 31st ransacking was the one that killed Claude Snelling. So there's been multiple different ways that their police are now able to prove that the Visalia ransacker has elevated his crimes from prowling and, and burglary and ransacking all the way to now homicide and attempted kidnapping. Police are going to talk to Claude's daughter. She, they're actually going to talk to her five times. The last time they're going to use hypnosis to try to identify a suspect because most people that have seen him to this point, remember he's prowling at night mainly uh, or it's a situation where they're not getting a good look at him. And he did wear a ski mask during this incident with, with the Snelling family. However, she's able to describe him as a white male, around 5'10", with a muscular and stocky build and a large face. She also mentioned how he seemed very methodical in his planning. He didn't seem panicked. He seemed like he had a plan and he was following it. Now, just a brief aside, Claude Snelling was a 45-year-old journal journalism professor at the nearby College of the Sequoias. He loved teaching and shaping young minds, and he loved his family more than anything. He is the first homicide victim of the man who would become known as the Golden State Killer. After this homicide, there's going to be about a week and a half lull in 
reported prowlings or ransackings. And normally that sounds like a short amount of time, but this guy was hitting houses almost on a nightly basis. So this incident definitely scared him off from the area for at least a week and a half, as long as he could suppress uh, the urges to do this. But in late September and early October, it's going to start up again. There's going to be several prowler events and another ransacking reported. And these are going to be linked back to the Visalia Ransacker and the killer of Claude Snelling via shoe prints and, and his M.O. Then the harassing phone calls start. This is the first I noticed it. I had heard that this had been going on longer than what was reported on this site, but the first reported one that I could find was October 20th, so a little over a month after Claude Snelling's killing. There's going to be a house that was ransacked on the 22nd is going to start receiving these harassing phone calls. Sometimes they're, they're hang-up calls, other times they're these heavy breathing calls. And on this date, this woman's going to be home alone, and she's going to hear what she thinks is someone trying to open the front door. She goes to look out the peephole, but the person on the other side is covering this peephole. And then roughly an hour later, she's going to get some more harassing phone calls coming into the house. And at the same time that these harassing phone calls are coming in, or roughly the same time, a young woman who lived in the house near the Snelling homicide is going to get harassing phone calls. So it seems like when this suspect can't do his thing where he goes and, and ransacks a home or even to the point of, of kidnapping or, or the homicide... He's going to get frustrated, but he's going to make these harassing phone calls uh, to continue his, his reign of terror. Now, these prowlings and ransackings are going to continue through October and November in 1975. And after the Snelling homicide, the police in Visalia realized they had to do something. The, I'm sure the community outcry was at an all-time fever pitch with all of these, you know, even prior to the homicide with all of these ransackings and prowlings. But now with this, with Claude Snelling's death, the police are going to get extremely proactive and are going to start sending out special patrols and establishing stakeouts at houses that have been ransacked and or prowled and or received harassing calls. So unfortunately, they're going to have a long list of houses that could be potential targets. Because uh, they're they're working under the the assumption that this suspect's going to continue his pattern of prowling and harassing, and eventually hit a home to either ransack it or maybe attempt another kidnapping. So one of these houses is going to be a house on on West Kauai Avenue, and this is a house that on February sixteenth of nineteen seventy five, the neighboring house had been ransacked. And this is where, on July 24th, that 19-year-old girl interrupted the ransacking and the suspect pushed her down and fled. So it does have a history with the Visalia Ransacker. And then on December 9th, they're going to find shoe prints confirmed to be the Visalia Ransacker shoe prints outside the house. So this gets put on now a very short list of houses that need to be staked out. So that was December 9th. And on December 10th at 6 p.m., Officer McGowan is going to enter the garage of the house where this 19 year old was pushed down. So, and, and about 30 minutes later, there's gonna be a reported ransacking on West Laurel Avenue, about a half mile south of where the stakeout's occurring. Two hours later at 8.30 p.m., 
Officer McGowan sees a shadowy figure creeping through the yard at the house he's staked out at. The suspect looks into the garage but does not see Officer McGowan and continues to the back gate. So Officer McGowan takes this opportunity to sneak behind the suspect and turn on his flashlight and then he identified himself as a police officer and told the suspect to hold it right there. Apparently the suspect, extremely startled at this point, starts screaming in a high-pitched voice, oh my god, oh my god, no. The suspect is wearing a dark ski mask that was pulled up over his forehead. He removes the ski mask at this point and stuffs it into his pocket before he takes off running. So he's going to jump this fence in this backyard and the officer McGowan's going to give chase. And it sounds like they ran around another backyard. The suspect the whole time is screaming in this high-pitched voice, don't hurt me, oh my god, please don't hurt me. And the officer keeps yelling at him, eventually telling him, stop or I'll shoot. And the suspect eventually stops. So the officer orders him, once the suspect stops, to put his hands up in the air or he'll shoot. The suspect complied with his right hand, telling the officer, look, my hands are up. But meanwhile, his left hand is digging his jacket pocket. And this is difficult as an officer who worked overnight so I know how difficult it can be to try to keep a good eye on everything that's going on with the suspect when it's dark out and I'm guessing it's you know it's December it's 8:30 at night so it's pitch black and depending if there's any ambient lighting or not what you what likely this officer is going to see is whatever his flashlight beam is hitting and if that beam is appropriately appropriately placed into the suspect's face as it should be it's going to be hard to watch both hands especially if one is digging in a pocket so i'm sure the officer is going to notice notice this but before the officer can react the suspect's going to remove a gun from his left jacket pocket and fire one shot at officer mcgowan officer mcgowan's going to go down at the same time officer mcgowan's partner is going to arrive and see his partner go down, and he's gonna yell into the radio and officer down and start rendering aid to McGowan. Now, unbeknownst to the partner, McGowan is not hit. It, the, the bullet actually hit the flashlight, which is a common thing when somebody is aiming, especially if you have a flashlight in your face, the only thing that you're gonna be able to see in the dark is that flashlight. You don't know if the, the person holding that flashlight is left or right of where that flashlight beam is. All you're gonna see is this blinding light so when this uh, when this uh, suspect shoots he shoots right at the light and actually hits the flashlight now McGowan is going to be injured from some shrapnel from the, the bullet damaging the flashlight it's going to send some metal fragments and glass into his face but he's not seriously injured he goes to the hospital he's released but Visalia police are going to put out a calling all cars style bulletin and all Visalia police officers on or off duty and then any of the local uh, highway patrol and the county deputies are going to come in to assist on a search at this point. So roughly 70 law enforcement officers are going to converge on the area and try to locate this suspect. Now they're going to set up what's called a perimeter and a perimeter is just an area, it's basically like a box of officers that try to keep a suspect boxed in. So if you're running from the cops and at every turn you go, you're running into another set of flashing lights, or uh, you're gonna not wanna go in that direction, you're gonna turn and probably go the other direction. Well, the idea is you keep them boxed inside this perimeter and then you can send in canine dogs or officers out on foot to try to 
locate this suspect within the box within the perimeter so this is what happens a perimeter set up some tracking dogs come out they are able to find several of the suspects shoe prints but by the time they realized that he changed direction so there was a last known direction the homeowner actually came out after the police officer was shot and saw the guy the suspect running away from the scene so he gives a direction of travel that the suspect was last running and they use that as the area to set up this perimeter however unbeknownst to the officers the suspect actually changed directions almost 180 degrees after getting away from out of the line of sight of the house so the area they set up the perimeter they believe the suspect was never in that perimeter so they're able to trace eventually trace him outside of the perimeter to a parking lot nearby where he likely either grabbed hopped in a car or grabbed a bicycle and took off officer mcgowan is able to give a description of the suspect and this is going to match the one given by claude snelling's daughter but because he had removed his mask, the officer's actually going to see the suspect's face, and he's going to describe him as being young, around 25 to maybe 35 years old, but having a baby face. Age is something that's difficult, especially in high-stress situations, to identify. I mean, somebody can be 35 and look like they're 20, and somebody can be 20 and look like they're 35. If, especially if they have a baby face, it's going to be difficult to say whether that person is you know, the 35-year-old that looks like he's 22 or whether it's really going to be a 22-year-old. But he is described as being muscular and, and stocky and being, being over 180 pounds. Now, again, this is December, early December of 1975, and this incident is going to basically bring about an end to the Visalia Ransacker cases. Uh, after this incident, there's going to be a few prowlings and burglaries reported but it's unknown if those were the work of the ransacker or whether they were a copycat or those are just your regular crimes and that's something that's difficult is whenever you have a major crime spree like this believed to be attributed to one suspect that doesn't mean that all other criminals in the area stop their activities so just because a burglary or ransacking or prowling occurred doesn't automatically mean that it was this one guy. There could have been another guy that was, was doing them at the same time, unrelated, unknown to the actual suspect uh, of the main string of, of these uh, crimes. But basically, if, if you look at all the ramping up in 1975 leading up towards or to Claude Snelling's homicide on September 11th and then the attempted murder of Officer McGowan on December 10th. The number of crimes that was occurring up to this point, there's just an almost complete drop-off of crimes after this attempted homicide. Everybody's going to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief, not the fact that the suspect was caught, because he wasn't, but because all because of this drop in crime unfortunately what they don't realize is that while the crimes have stopped in Visalia things are about to get a lot worse in East Sacramento so this suspect's not even close to being done and he's about to go full-on monster on the people of, of East Sacramento so real quick before we wrap up this episode and move on to, to episode two We'll talk about some of the crimes that we mentioned here and the crime scenes. So remember, this is the mid-70s, early to mid-70s. So DNA is not a thing. 
Uh, the best that they could do was try to get a blood type, which required one of two things. It either required the actual blood from the suspect, or in the case of some people, they're called secretors. And secretors are people whose there's a small amount of, of blood makes it into their bodily fluid, like saliva, semen, what, and, and other bodily fluids, that is an able to then identify a blood type of somebody and back then blood type was about as good as you could get and it was a great elimination tool so if you had a suspect that was o negative but your crime scene has blood that's a positive you could rule that guy out now some blood types are more rare than others so if you had somebody that was b positive and i'm not i don't know if b positive is a rare one or not but i'm just saying if if b positive was rare and you had a suspect that was B positive, and at your crime scene you have B positive blood, not only can you not exclude him, you could definitely put him to the top of your suspect list. However, it's never gonna reach a point of identification. In order to get identification back in the mid 70s, you're gonna have to have fingerprints. And I didn't read anything anywhere about fingerprints, which was kind of shocking for me since that was kind of the, the go-to identifier of the day. So I don't know if this guy is wearing gloves. It sounds like he wasn't when he was covering Claude Snelling's daughter's mouth because uh, there was talk in there about his hands didn't smell or so, something along those lines. So there should be fingerprints being left behind. Maybe they were and they just either weren't of a quality to be compared or there wasn't a comparison on file. We might discover more of that because as his crimes ramp up, so did the investigations uh, into him. But for at least for while he was the Visalia ransacker, I didn't see anything in there about him being being able to be identified. Now, he did leave blood at one of the scenes, and I don't know if it says a Visalia ransacker or later on that, that came back as, I believe, was A positive. But basically what they're using is the shoe prints that he's leaving behind to identify that he's for sure involved in one prowling incident or another or one ransacking or another and then they do have that ballistic evidence from the 38 caliber bullet at claude snelling's uh, homicide to be able to say that for sure whoever's doing this that they believe to be the vicelia ransacker is also responsible for this homicide and is also responsible for the attempted murder on officer mcgowan so that's going to be it to wrap up the first part of the Terror in California series of this podcast. Expect it's likely going to be four episodes long, which is what I kind of planned on making it. So stay tuned. I will get to the next parts as quickly as I can. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Feel free to reach out and contact me either via email or Facebook and support me on Patreon if you can. But Until next time, thanks for listening, guys. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye.